Before I begin the stray thoughts for tonight, Dharma riff, uh, I wanted to, since Catherine mentioned the group of volunteers, I wanted to especially appreciate our, I don't know what you call yourself, Carrie, but I wanted to especially appreciate Carrie McElroy, who has informed me that we, she has now videoed 100, she has 100 Dharma talks from Tuesday night. And it's on our website. And, and Carrie has done this as a, a gesture of generosity and to support our community. And she keeps track of people listening to these talks and they are literally listening in every corner of the globe to the Dharma talks that happen on Tuesday night. And she has done this just by the, out of the goodness of her heart. And I found out tonight really for the first time, and I'm amazed that I didn't really know the full breadth of this, but each talk takes six to eight hours to actually film, to, to transfer, to upload and to do some editing on it so that it looks presentable to the, to the YouTube channel. So thank um, Carrie, all of you. And I, I, it, I could do a story a week about, about everyone uh, who helps at uh, Mission Dharma and, and it's just a beautiful thing to be participate. And actually, just as I say that, I, I think of the, the whole dissemination of the, the teachings. And I was reflecting tonight that just how all the different forces that have come together for us to be able to be here. And I was speaking to a, a fellow who's here for the first time tonight. And... He was wondering, he wanted to ask some questions about the teachings, and I thought that, and I shared a few things with him while, we were, while I was on my way up here. And then I realized that uh, often people may not understand everything that, how the teachings came to be, and of course I could never do it in one evening. But the first thing that I thought about tonight is that a lot of why this entire um, body of teachings, why it's often called Buddhism, is because of colonialism. Until the 19th century, there was no Buddhism. Buddhism was, was that idea of Buddhism was created by the English to somehow lump the teachings of the Buddha into something that was understandable like Christianity or another religion. It was never considered a religion. And in fact, the Buddha wasn't really a Buddhist. The Buddha was awake. The Buddha was awake. And he, his awakening to the very same awakened nature that lives in you and lives inside of me as a capacity, as a possibility, uh, was something that he simply spent 45 years of his life sharing what he had discovered through his own 
study through his own direct experience, through his own practice, and he created forms around him. He created a community around him of people who were quite serious about experiencing the same awakening that he did. And that community he called the Sangha. So not disconnected for what, for, from what we're doing here. And during those 45 years, he shared just a, he was a fountain of teaching. And he was, he would share teachings with lay people like us. And he would share teachings with the people who came close and were willing to go forth and enter into the a monastic or more a renunciate existence. But he gave as many teachings to lay people as he gave to the, the nuns and the monks. And it was through that exchange, that living exchange of teachings, that what we call the Dharma, the teachings, came about. They were not this polished body of perfectly formed, shaped, full of lists, completely a kind of linear version that we find. It was a living forging that came from an experience like we're having here. Questions arising, answers shared, and then so that they could be, the teachings could be repeated over and over because it was an or, completely an oral tradition for the first 500 years. Slowly the teachings were collated into lists that could be shared again and again and again. And so we find that at the heart of everything is awakening, is the Dharma, the teachings, and the Sangha, without which the teachings could never have been shaped in the way that they have so that you could understand them. And we're, we often, you know, it's very easy to, to see things in a particular, in a particular um, what we'd call dualistic way that, that uh, about all the, in some ways, the horrors of, of colonialism and this, such tremendous suffering that came through that, through the, uh, the appropriation of so much of the cultures of Asia and other places in the world because of colonialism. But there's something in colonialism if that made it possible for, for the teachings to come here in a, in a body that people could relate to called Buddhism, which is interesting. I find that interesting anyway. So as I was sitting tonight, I was, you know, both reflecting on the, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And when anyone comes into the, to the teachings, the invitation, title of my book, Invitation to Meditation, but the invitation to the Dharma, invitation to entering into the life of awakening, the encouragement is that you that you are that you explicitly in your mind clearly aim your or direct your 
intention, because everything hangs on our intentions. This is a central part of the teachings, the radical contribution of the Buddha to the already existing law of cause and effect, that every action has a result. Whether we think something, say something, act in some way, everything produces consequences. But the, the effect of those consequences, the fruit of those, of those actions, is determined by, is dependent on the, the intention behind it. So uh, the example I often give is, is the intention to offer a gift to someone. If you offer a gift to someone because you want them to th see you as a generous person, it will have a very different result as if you want to offer that gift because you feel just the, the outpouring of your heart and you want that person to be happy. Same gift, very different result. And so we can see that our actions are often depending on the engine that's driving them. But the Buddha's suggestion vis-a-vis -vis the teachings was that, you, that it's helpful if you clearly articulate the intention to wake up, the intention to be free, the intention to aim your life toward not just the happiness of sim simple sense pleasures, not just the happiness of good company, not just the happiness of solitude or health, but the happiness of the sure heart's release, the happiness of liberation. To aim your, aim your life in that direction. And assuming that, that if you do aim your life in that direction, in the direction of, of freedom, it doesn't mean that you give up all the things of this world that we normally associate with happiness, but we, we don't get bound up in them. We aim for the highest happiness, and along with that, as a, just a byproduct of that aim, we get all kinds of joys, all kinds of pleasures, all kinds of delights, but we don't get stuck. We don't let the pleasure of things overwhelm us so that we get lost in an endless searching for, for the next pleasure which unfortunately has not liberated anyone's heart. It's just made us more and more bound to this state of seeking, bound in a, a state of dissatisfaction, bound in a state of perpetual, what I call suspended happiness, always waiting. Waiting for this talk to end, waiting for the weekend, waiting for the, you know, everything. So the way that the, one of the ways that the Buddha reminded us that we could aim for this highest happiness, for the happiness of freedom, and the face of that freedom or the expression of that freedom being, being love and, and compassion, joy, equanimity, the way that we could do that is to remind ourselves that we are not just going with the stream of what everyone else is doing. That the most compassionate thing, most loving thing that you can do in your life is to become wise. The wisest thing that you can do in your life is to become compassionate. Now, ordinarily, if you were to look at the 
advertising, for example, the wisest thing that you can do for your life is to uh, become successful, is to accumulate a lot of resources, is to go to a lot of places, it's to have a, a lot of fun, which you know, not inherently problematic, but the, the wisdom of our world mostly turns out to be not very loving to our hearts. It's not very loving, it's not very compassionate to set your mind in a state of, of perpetual wandering and waiting and hoping. It's oppressive to continue to tell our minds through the way that we search, to tell our minds that we can't be completely happy now. That we can't find relief right where we're sitting, right in this very moment. That we can't be liberated or that we are not intrinsically liberated. It's not very kind to say that we have to leave ourselves to find relief, that we have to distract ourselves, that we have to busy ourselves. It's not very wise, nor is it compassionate. So the, the, Buddha, the, the path of the world is all about and it's because we love ourselves, we want to be happy, we want to be compassionate and do the best for ourselves, but the, the medicine we're offered, the methodology that we're offered is to, that the way out is to go, is to keep busy, is to lean forward, is to aim for a future where happiness is to be found. that leaves us often tense, often in a state of anxiety, in a state of worry. Maybe it won't work out. Any of you ever feel that sense of maybe it won't work out? Now what needs to work out? What if I say, of course you never should believe me, that it's already worked out? Our greatest conviction is that something needs to be worked out. What happens when you suspend that view for a moment? Everything's granted. You don't need anything. You're fine as you are. Try it on for a moment. Isn't it amazing that the, our nature, our unique expression of life, our humanity, isn't enough? That somehow we think that we have to add something, be different than the way we are? Now, of course, a lot of our motivation to be different is because we're suffering. We hurt. But a lot of the hurt is because of that chronic tendency to stay in a, in a state of suspended happiness, in a state of restlessness, in a state of worry, in a state of anxiety. Because we can't possibly believe that the way out is to stay where we are. So the world says, feed the, feed the wanting mind. You know, at the beginning of retreats, I often, will often give the, 
the training guidelines, the agreements that we make to live together in harmony on the retreat so people can feel safe. And we, we often do what are called the three refuges, and that's kind of what I'm getting at tonight. We talk about the retreat culture that supports for this time to be, do nothing but orient yourself to the living present. Do that in a sustained way, but in order to do that, it, it is a, a process of peeling away, of letting ourselves down and letting ourselves be and letting our hearts, our, our tension unwind and let our hearts begin to sing again. It's important that, we're, that we feel safe when we do that. So we give the, the operating instructions for a retreat, the culture of the retreat, and then I'll often say, now just think of the operating instructions you're given for your daily life. What we're given, other than the, you know, the golden rule and all that, we're, often, we're mostly taught that the form of our life is distract yourself any way you can, be lost in thought, gratify every desire, and work your ass off so that you can gratify every desire. And as the Dalai Lama says, we, I wish I had it with me. Maybe I, nope, I don't. We spend so much time trying to make money and then we spend most of our money trying to, trying to heal ourselves after we've gotten so stressed out. And our eye is so on the future that we don't live in the present. We don't live in the present, don't live in the future. And we live as though we're never going to die and we die having never really lived. So we just get caught in a loop. That's called samsara. So we think all day, distract yourself. We learn to hold on real tight, control yourself. And it's exactly the opposite of what really heals us, what really soothes our heart. And so what the Buddha said, aim for this highest happiness and to remind yourself that you that the field of your study, the field of your liberation is right here in this very body, in this very land, that this is, as Hakuin Zen Master says, this is the lotus land, right here. You are the Buddha. Why don't you see this? Because you're, you're busy thinking that you're not and you need to go elsewhere. So, Basically, he said, we, do, we reflect on three things and we remind ourselves that there are three places that you can go for safety, for security, for support, for liberation. First one, go to the Buddha for refuge. And the way it's been translated through the years, and it's useful up to a point, is you go to the Buddha for refuge, you reflect on this historical human being called Siddhartha Gautama, who, through his own effort, as I said before, through his stopping, through not going out, but turning the other way, turning inward, turning inward to see what the, what's actually here, and then using the power of attention, 
to study moment to moment instead of faith that is born of adopting a belief system, like in most religions, the faith that he discovered was born of his own direct experience. So there's nothing about belief. It was about using our own innate intelligence. So the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was a, a, an example of somebody who did that. And that because he was human, you can do it too. So that's a, you can go to the Buddha in that way for refuge and, and inspiration. That's a beautiful thing. But when the Buddha was asked over and over, you know, who are you? He didn't say, I'm the big shot Buddha. He said, I'm awake. Buddha means awake. And what he was pointing to is that what he discovered within him, himself was an unconditional wakefulness, unborn, incorruptible, deathless. He saw that that was the very nature of his mind. And he says, go to this which you are intrinsically, primordially. Go to this for refuge. So in the general sense, I like to think of it as go to the fact that you, go to this capacity that you have, this, that which allows you to even hear these words tonight, which is your awareness. That you, the fact that you are aware, that you are cognizant. Go to this for refuge. It is, shouldn't believe this, it's incorruptible. It's intrinsically free. And when it is nurtured as a refuge, all of the qualities that spring from this Buddha nature are able to mature and express themselves. One is, one of the ways it expresses itself is this capacity to be clear, to clearly comprehend what's actually happening in a moment. Why is that so important? Because so much of our life we are literally living in distorted perceptions. We're living in a dreamscape of ourselves, an imaginary version of ourselves. We're not actually experiencing life directly. It's secondhand. Directly, it's very simple. It's very clear. It's very alive. It's very enlivening. It's very unexplainable. It's very free. Real time. What also awakens is uh, with that, that quality of clarity, comprehension is inevitably, if that clarity and clear comprehension is there, heartbreak. The face of that is caring. So go to the Buddha for refuge. Then you get intelligence with clarity. You get 
compassion. And what do you, when it comes to, when it comes to clarity or wisdom or intelligence, what is it that you see? What is it that you see if you pay attention in an unfiltered way? Where you step out of your ordinary world of, of views and opinions, stories. What do you see when you see clearly? You see basically three things. You see a lot, but I'll just reduce it tonight to three things. You see that everything is that can be known, that can be comprehended, everything that enters any one of the senses that allows us to experience our life is in a state of constant change, flux. That everything that arises passes away. And everything that arises and passes away reminds us, if we see that, we see that about our, what we call ourselves, we see that about everyone else and everything else, and we see that there's really nothing in this world that you can cling to, that you can make last permanently in a world of changing conditions. And you can see that what is arising and passing cannot be owned. It can't be me. It can't be mine. It can't be myself. Even this, this body cannot be me. It is a changing condition. And this changing condition of this body if we see with clarity, we see that our body and everything about us and our life is, uh, is based on a set of contingencies. Everything depends on everything else. This body depends on earth and air and fire and water, these conditions that are unstable, not personal. Our psychology, our religious views, everything depends on non-personal conditions. We see this when we see with clarity. Everything is affecting everything. So that kind of wisdom reminds us of how, what a distorted view it is to take everything so personally and then to blame ourselves for even, for almost any part of our present existence when we see that we cannot even find a beginning for one thing about our life. And if we really look carefully at all the conditions that came together to form each of our lives, we would see a, a set of conditions that, hadn't, that, that were set in motion long before we had anything to do with it. And not only were they set in motion long before we had to do with it, that we can't even help having turned out the way that we did. But our narrow and distorted perception through our distorted views, when we don't see directly and clearly, is everything gets co-opted by this need to make it about me. That it's my fault 
that I did everything. And this is not to say that you don't have individual agency, that you don't have, you don't have your individual responsibility, but all of us are the, also the heir of so many contingent circumstances. And we see this. And then we see that to treat ourselves harshly, to judge ourselves the way we do, is a grievous error. And hopefully, that kind of clarity of perception, wisdom, opens up the heart of compassion. That's how it happens. So the Buddha said, go to the, go to the Buddha for refuge. Wake up! You are, um, we're not kids anymore. Wake up. Learn how to grieve. You're going to have to do a lot of it. Don't turn it into the dreaded enemy, loss. Loss is what happens when you're born. Definition of birth, the leading cause of loss. Everything will be lost eventually. I'm not saying to be morbid about this, but it's how it is. So the Buddha suggested that you live in accordance with truth. That's the Dharma. Go to the Dharma for refuge. There are many levels of understanding. We go to the Buddha, historical Buddha, the Buddha, the wakefulness that lives in each of us. We go to the Dharma. Dharma is, the, is nature, the laws of nature. It's you. You are the Dharma. Nature could not express itself you could not find any nature more than you. It's so interesting the way our languages go out to nature. Stand on the earth. We forget that we are the earth. We are nature. We are earth, air, fire, water. I know these conventional ways of saying things are useful. Difference between a city and the forest. But we want to reclaim our and be in harmony with nature. So we, we go to the Dharma for nature. We come back to our bodies. We come back to the laws of nature, of change. We come back to the understanding that comes with clarity that when you act in a way that is uh, filled with ill will, you tend, to, you tend to get contracted. You tend to, it tends to to compound. It tends to make you unhappy. That's why it's a, such a beautiful thing to see in this world when people have been harmed tremendously and they can forgive because they see that, it, that it's incredibly painful to hold this desire for revenge or to hold resentments. So we don't only do it for ourselves, we do it for others. We want to just keep keep letting go, because we see that practicing ill will just harms ourselves and others. So we learn that kind of thing by, by attending to the way life actually is. So that's the Dharma. But the Dharma is everything that's happening any moment. So we don't have to, live, we don't have to go anywhere other than right here. And then when you leave here, you're still right here, wherever you are. Never, ever have to leave here. Even when you're zooming down the road, in your car, you're right where you are, sitting behind the wheel. Just keep referring to that. 
And so we go to the Buddha for refuge, we go to the Dharma for refuge, and clearly there is, um, there is maybe the most precious jewel of all, and without which we could not, there would be no Buddha or Dharma, is the Sangha, is the, the mutual dependence, the mutual support that we offer each other through practicing together, through the, you know, I just think of how absolutely mad the world is and so much craziness, and yet come here on Tuesday night and I, I, get, I get reassured that there is sanity right in the middle of it all. And what a cool thing to sit quietly together and then talk about living in harmony with life, talk about kindness, talk about generosity, talk about, talk about loving kindness and compassion. Not just talk about it, but actually feel it awaken in us. So I think I'll end, since the time is up, I'll end with my favorite little Shantideva passage. He says, as a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So may all beings recognize and go to the Buddha or that wakefulness for refuge. May all beings go to the Dharma, nature, truth for refuge. May all beings go to the Sangha for refuge, the support of other beings who have the same impulse to awaken to the Buddha and Dharma. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all, including ourselves. May all beings be liberated. May our practice touch the hearts of all beings. Thank you for your practice. Thanks for your support, generosity, your, especially your presence here. And hope to, hopefully I'll see you, we'll see each other next Tuesday, and then really consider taking a Friday off and coming to loving the house that Ego built. Anyway, thank you. <laughs>